Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to Keep Calm and Carry On. I am your host, Daniel Paris. Thank you for joining me today. I'm delighted to have as my guest, Jeff Brown. Jeff is the uh, CEO, founder, and president of Brown's Superstores. They're part of the the Wakefern Grocery Cooperative, and his stores consist of uh, 10 ShopRites and two the Fresh Grocers in the greater uh, Philadelphia area. Jeff, uh, thank you so much for, for being on the show. Daniel, thanks for having me. Some of you might wonder where I, given the previous guests on the show, where I encountered Jeff. So in the interest of full disclosure, we went to high school together a long, long time ago when dinosaurs roamed the earth. Uh, Jeff has become very prominent in the, the grocery community in, and uh, food service community in, in the Philadelphia area. And for uh, listeners who follow me, as you know, I regularly discuss and recommend the people treat their investments in stocks as businesses, not just as stock prices that go up or down, but as an ownership stake in a business. And from that perspective, speaking to somebody who runs a large and complex, and we'll have to say the grocery business is not only large and complex, but also very, very difficult. Speaking to someone who runs a large business, I think is helpful for our listeners and investors to cross that line and view their holding in, say, a let's you know, say an, an Albertsons or a Kroger, large publicly traded grocery firms, and, and in interest of full disclosure, those, those securities are not relevant to my day job. I have to make that clear. But uh, that people do, who do own or take an interest in these types of businesses can understand the perspective of the business owner who owns it as a private entity, that it is not driven by the share price, that they're not looking at the share price every single day. So uh, thank you, uh, Jeff, again, for coming on the show. And uh, uh, agreeing to share with us a little bit uh, some of the difficulties or the challenges of being uh, a grocer from the perspective of the stock market. I look at uh, grocery firms and you know gross margins are low and difficulties are high. Uh, many of us in the stock market you know love to see companies with 30 and 40 percent operating margins. I mean that's hard to do, but does exist even in some of the older economy companies, you know, 10, 12, 15%, 20% operating margins. The grocery business is really, really hard. Uh, gross margins, if I do look at Kroger and Albertsons, those gross margins are maybe 20%. And again, you don't have to reveal your numbers, but simply, you know, I, I, we'd love to get some of the insights as to how you deal with 12 mostly urban grocery stores, the challenges of uh, food supply costs, of interruptions labor supply issues most recently in the last year or two, the slightest change in price can you know, wreak havoc with, with your, your business model. Uh, I know that's a lot to ask, but maybe you can kind of summarize just some of the, what are the key challenges of, of running a low margin business other than the, the standard answer to that, which I encountered, which was pile it high and sell it cheap. That sounds good as a sound bite, but it's not actually a practical way of running a business. How, how do you go to, business, go to market every single day? Well, um, to start out with, we try to differentiate from our competitors. Of course, we all compete on price, and, and we're, we're very sensitive to price. But that's not the only way we go to market. And so uh, one of the interesting things about our cooperative is that there's fifty over 50 different owners that tend to be concentrated in the ge geographic area. And they sort of have a little more flexibility to serve the market. And so in my case, I serve a, an urban market, a very diverse market, and I adjust uh, what I sell to, to be a better fit to the market. So one of the ways I compete is understand my customers better and serve them. 
you know, much, much more in a much more focused way. Um, the other thing is uh, we, my business is unionized. Mo- most of my workers are unionized. The two other companies you mentioned are mostly unionized, Albertsons and, and Kroger. But, you know, today the fastest growing parts of the food business are non-union. You know, the Walmarts, the Targets, the Aldis, the Lidl's. Um, and so that, that's an extra challenge we have in an already very low margin business. And so I think it's incumbent upon us to be uh, very intentional and very aggressive with, you know, using technology to bring down costs, doing things right the first time, you know, managing every cent. And, and you know, what you said to start out with in, in my way of thinking hasn't changed. We do stack it high and watch it fly. That still is part of our business philosophy. Uh, we have a, an aggressive and very exciting sales program where we, just like the old days, build big displays and put a, a good price on it. And people still do like that. So uh, one thing, though, it sounds like, though, for the customization, say, of the Philadelphia market, whereas some of the large national chains uh, and, and in my line of business, uh, the, the stock market, the love scale, loves growth. What do you do to get scale? What do you do to get growth? What do you, you know, how do you simplify it so that it, you have scale? In effect, you're saying, no, 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 to some extent, localization is actually for your size business is uh, not only important, but a key to success and a way to uh, compete with, with national vendors who are more focused on scale and less on localization. That's your, your moat, as it were, to protect your business? Yeah, uh, what we, we try to do both. So I'm part of a co-op that does about $19 billion a year. And that, I think, puts us in a top 10 national player. And that's scale. And so some things like procurement of, of big, big consumer goods item, we do that at scale. But then on the other hand, we're very agile because I'm a local business person. I mean, I, I, I spend time with the people I serve I eat in the restaurants. I do the things they do. I live in Philadelphia. And I'm incredibly more intimately familiar with my customers than my national competitors are. And as, as Philadelphia changes, I'm very sensitive to the changes in, in the mix of race, religion, culture, uh, immigration patterns. And uh, we, we are very agile. We, the cycle time from when we notice a change to when we implement a strategy could be you know, days or weeks. And sometimes my competitors could go 10 or 20 years and they don't have a way to customize to that degree. So before we get to your agility, because that's really the secret sauce here, I, I, I do want to just spend a few minutes more on how difficult your business is. Let, let's go over how it's been the past, you know, essentially almost two years at this point, incredible with a low margin business, uh, add disruption and you get a mess. And then if you add 18 months of disruption, you got to and zigzags. Uh, I mean, that is that is not easy. What what have you you know? What has been your main strategy in dealing with completely unexpected in a, in a in a brutally tough uh, environment? So I I think that the best thing that we did was we recognized the normal way to run our business. Um, you know, let's say monthly meetings, quarterly budgets, annual budgets. Um, AI-assisted ordering, all the kind of modern tools of our industry, all went completely out the window in the pandemic. None of that was the right way to run a business in the pandemic. And uh, so one of the things that Wakefern did is they started sometimes everyday officer meetings because information was coming in so fast, and none of us have ever dealt with a pandemic before. 
And so every day we would download what we learned, us in nine different states, you know, the officers of, of the business. And we would see something one of our competitors did we liked. We thought it was good for us. We should do it. We would hear stories around the globe. We, we had a, a session with um, independent operators in, in Wuhan and the greater China area, also in Italy, where, th- where the disease was progressing much faster. And so every day we adjusted our plan to protect our customers and our employees. So we were the first up with shields. We, I, my business was one of the first to mask everybody. Um, and, and we had to plan buying those masks way in advance. Did you so have trouble C- getting, getting supplies? Well, what happened is the CDC said, don't buy masks. Don't put people in masks. That's not the way to do it. We talked to people in Wuhan and they said, your CDC's not right. The only way to control the spreads masks. So uh, we went and procured those masks before they were hard to get. Mm-hmm. And so we, we were able to keep our employees in masks the whole time. And, you know, um, during this whole period, I want to say in my stores, my employees, about 3% of them got sick. And that's incredibly improved performance over the general society that stayed home. Mm-hmm. So my people worked every day and got less sick than people who stayed home because um, we had the proper protection for them. And there was no handbook for it. So it was every single day. What did we learn? What do we need to do? You know, and we, we must have had 100 different inter- interventions, including, you know, uh, socially distancing everything, in- including we had to put panels on the backside of the register. So if someone sneezed, it wouldn't go in between customers. And we had security outside metering, letting only a certain amount of people in the store at a time and sanitation procedures. So we took it very seriously and we adjusted to the new norm. And uh, of course, the other problem was um, the, the, the sort of global uh, food system was broken. It was broken because every time someone got sick in a factory or a meat plant, um, it would spread very quickly because due to efficiency, they jammed more and more people in less space and that, that wasn't going to work. So uh, flexibility was important. What I had noticed is the grocery type products w- w- wasn't enough because everyone who ate, instead of going half to restaurants and half to grocery stores, they all piled into grocery stores. And so what happened is the restaurant suppliers had too much inventory, but it wasn't prepared for retail. Right. Uh, large containers of tomato sauce in, in the gallons rather than in the, uh, the pints, as it were. Exactly. And so what we, what we started to do is experiment with buying restaurant supply and in some cases converting it ourselves. Mm-hmm. Pouring we it convert, into the right size bottles. Repackage, yeah. uh, re, you know, re-merchandise. Um, and, we would, and we started bringing in all kinds of innovative solutions. Like, you know, we couldn't, we couldn't get um, uh, Lysol. So we found a manufacturer who had a product that did the same thing, but didn't have a known brand. And so we, we literally brought in hundreds of items. And I'd go on my social media and say, look, we can't get Lysol, but this is what we're able to get. You should come in and try it. It's going to work good. And so as a big company, especially a national company, that's sort of, again, agility of repackaging merchandise. None of them could do that. Right. So you're, you're a cooperative. So you own your 12 stores. You're part of a cooperative uh, wake fern, which has the ShopRite brand. So whenever anyone sees a ShopRite brand, mostly in the Northeast, is yes. ShopRite? The nine mostly. states are all in, all in the Northeast. So whenever you see ShopRite, they are owned by the members of a cooperative. 
not a national corporation. So it is literally a cooperative rather than a vertically integrated chain of command. And I'm putting words in, in your mouth. That cooperative structure allowed you and your uh, fellow co-op members, uh, owners of other shop rights in the Northeast, to just be much faster. Yeah. Right or wrong, whatever decision you, you took, whether it was the right one or the wrong one, you were able to take it and implement it just much faster than a national chain. Yeah, and, and if we did it, and, and we found that it had a bad impact, it wasn't working the way we intended, we'd do it differently the next day or the next week. Right. So um, the, the lead time from when, when we got information and we implemented a decision to when we evaluated and tweaked it was very, very short compared to a lot of our competitors would have trouble operating at that speed. So you're, you're a big business, but again, I want to mention this. This is a little bit small is beautiful, uh, a phrase from the 60s, which doesn't really carry much heft these days. But in, in the case of this interaction, having a global supply chain and dependent upon what you or anyone needs coming from around the world, suboptimal when the whole system falls apart and having a more local environment. Did you uh, find the ability to source you know, things that couldn't, fruits and vegetables that couldn't come from the Central Valley in California? but could come in maybe in smaller quantity and not quite as pretty from Pennsylvania? Did you do that type of pivoting? Yeah, we, we um, uh, acquired products from people we never did business with before, local and the surrounding areas, and not in a form that's retail friendly. And mm-hmm. we would repackage them to make them retail friendly so we could keep our customers in business. And in a lot of cases, um, we were stocked. Our national competitors were not as well stocked. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's let's uh, shift a little bit to some of that local local flavor. One of the characteristics in the research that I did for uh, into your your business is that you do serve food deserts, and that probably provides a competitive advantage because other large chains aren't interested uh, in doing that. And second, that you uh, at least appear. I don't know how larger part of it, your business it is, but you appear to provide room for local entrepreneurs who are getting into the food manufacturing business to have some pop-up space, uh, or not pop-up space, just space, but it kind of looks like pop-up space, at least initially, in, in your stores. Can you talk a little bit about both serving the food deserts as a business opportunity, not just as a social responsibility, but as a business opportunity, the, the puts and takes there, and also about getting in on the ground floor of, again, I, I'm assuming nine out of 10 of those pop-ups don't make it, but maybe one does and it can make a huge difference. Right. So um, when I was challenged uh, over 20 years ago to consider food deserts, I I was with all my competitors in the state and all of them had very bad experiences, almost 100% failure rate. And uh, the problem is when you look at a very low income area, um, they basically, the, the amount of money they have to spend and the circumstances, the difficulty of the area that affects the consumer or the residents, but also affects the business, you know, whether it's high crime or high taxes, um, a whole litany of old infrastructure, it makes food desert stores very difficult. And one of the things I found is when you reduce uh, a household's income, what happens is they tend to cut out the value-added products and move to a a greater mix of commodities that tend to be very low margin items. So that's one problem. The second problem is they tend to be undereducated compared to the suburban population, higher dropout rate, uh, less literacy, less um, ability, re- less work ready skills. Um, and so there's much higher cost of training. When you add it all up, there's a gap that's quite tremendous, uh, 
potentially 5% of sales. And Which so, in a low margin business is the difference between yeah, and failure. Yeah, no, in a 1% business, if you have a 5% of sales gap, you're 4% short. That's a lot. That could be a couple million dollars a year store in shortfall. And so uh, when I looked at this, um, I thought that that gap was the biggest issue. I didn't think it was a racism problem as much as it was a financial puzzle to be solved. And so uh, what I did in my early days, and I was the first one in the country, was sort of reimagine the financial model of how we could do this. And one of the things that I went to the government and I said, you know, you're spending, you know, possibly 50 to 100 billion a year in excess healthcare costs because of obese, sick uh, people. Um, is it worth it to help us fix this gap? You know, would you get a possibly a good return to society? And so a lot of our deals had some form of public involvement or partnership, you know, to, to bring get, to get the you gap. to open up in a, in, in, a, the, in a food desert. Yeah, really, before I opened up, I had to have a model that worked. Yeah. And so I would have a model that would have $2 million a year loss. And is there a way to use public financing or, or incentives to narrow that loss down? And we were able to find that both working at the landlord level and reimagining their capital stack. And working at my retail level, um, we, we could figure out half the gap. Mm-hmm. So it re- reduced capital costs on the landlord would reduce the rent. Reduced capital costs on the, on the store would reduce the debt service on the equipment and startup costs. And that would mitigate half the gap. And then the other half of the gap, um, I started out with town hall meetings to talk to our customers. And I discovered that um, things were so different than suburban America that it really required us to rethink how we did our business. And uh, we, we went through uh, iteration of iteration of changing our merchandising, changing our hiring practices, and it really let, led us to be an incredibly socially responsible business. Now, did you, just before we get to that, because that's really how, where I went ahead, uh, were there initial subsidies from government authorities? And I assume after your business was established, those were no longer necessary after a couple of years, or is that, uh, is that correct? Yeah, so um, most of the um, assistance came in the form of traditional economic development incentives. Like at the federal government, they have new market tax credits. Mm -hmm. And you can only use them if you're in a severely depressed economic area and you have to meet other criteria. And so what I discovered is in the the grocery industry, we generally did not use that kind of thing before because the industry avoided those areas. And so um, I, I started to look, uh, through different existing incentives. And we were able to find mostly uh, stuff at the federal level, but in some cases at the state level. Like we, we, I was part of a team that developed the Pennsylvania Fresh Food Financing Initiative. And the idea would be that you use federal incentives, you do the smart entrepreneurial things. And if there's still a gap, there potentially could be grants or financing to help mitigate the remaining gap to get the store to be a go. Is that still necessary, you know, five or seven years in, or is that is it uh, generally peter out after a couple of years? Yeah, it generally, generally um, these incentives all burn off in, in, between a year or two, and maybe the, the new market tax credits could go go for five to seven years, mm-hmm. and then okay. the store's got to stand on its own. On its own, right? As in any business. Yeah. Uh, that's the first half of the show. Thank you, everyone. So uh, we're going to have a commercial break here. No, we're not. We don't have any commercials. The second big wave of uh, investment thinking that's occurring right now on my end of the table is ESG investing, which stands for 
environmental, social, and gover governance investing. And it's a, a paradigm that uh, if I, it's also politi a political minefield. So my summary of it itself creates risk for me even to say it, but I'm going to try to say it. But uh, try to create an investing environment which is better rather than worse for the world and for the community and not uh, exclusively focused on, on shareholder returns. That's, again, a, a highly subjective uh, definition of ESG investing. It's overwhelming right now in the public equity space. And, but only over the last couple of years, it's uh, origins, last couple of decades, more in Europe than in the United States, but coming to the US, coming to an investment uh, near you. And yet I see what you're doing and I, I want you to describe and outline what you're doing in your community. And it's got ESG written all over it, but you've probably even never heard of ESG before because it's not really part of the private markets business, but you have been engaged in your community Clearly, for, for many years, I, I encourage our listeners to, to look you up, Jeff Brown Grocer on LinkedIn, Jeff Brown Grocer on uh, Twitter, uh, on Facebook. You can find it on the internet. You have a number of other platforms. Feel free to mention them. And uh, what struck me was that your degree of involvement with the community is something also that the large national chains cannot possibly uh, meet. Their decision-making doesn't allow for it. It's too, too centralized. And uh, that that has, has probably been a, being a good ESG steward, even though you wouldn't use that term, uh, has probably contributed, I'm guessing, to simple business success. And I, I would love to hear about the various programs. I mentioned one. There's another one I really hope you get to uh, about uh, your involvement with the community. It's not just a matter of opening up in a food desert. That on its own is, I'm going to assume, is insufficient. It's, it's a tremendous involvement in the community. Do you want to kind of highlight some of the, the elements of, of your community involvement? Yeah. So um, in a lot of the stores that we operate in, um, they're highly distressed communities. They have a lot of challenges. I mean, these would be places that have low educational attainment, very high poverty rates. Um, they, they, they have life expectancies that are much shorter than the average. And so they just have, they have violence and homicide that, rates that are much higher than, than, matter of fact, Philadelphia is one one of the most challenged in the country. Um, so when you try to do business, you realize that so many bad things are happening. It's actually hard to even operate. And so from er early on, uh, you know, I started this town hall meeting process with, with my customers. And, you know, first they gave me all the food challenges to understand their culture, their religion, and to come up with customized solutions. And we did well with that quickly. But then I realized what really stopped me from being a great business was the problems of the community really were holding my customers back and causing problems for, in the operation of the business. And so the customers started to say to me, we love how you solved these A, B, C, D problems we gave you. Can you start working on gun violence? And can, can you help us with returning citizens? Can you help us? They had a laundry list of social problems. And, and uh, you know, my first reaction is, well, it does, doesn't the government do those things? And they said, they say they do, but they really don't because it's the worst it's ever been here. And we like the way you solve problems. So we want you to take a crack at it. And, you know, we started to work on some of these. And, and we found that in some cases, we were better suited to solve a problem than the government. Because of your, because you were not the government, because you were local, because you had better community contacts or just because you were a fresh set of eyes? Well, uh, the, fresh set of business? the fresh set of eyes are important or some, sometimes um, in our business, we call it store blind. 
If you go to the same place every single day, you stop seeing the things that are wrong. And the fresh set of eyes is the same thing. That is part of it, but there's a bigger thing. The government's challenged with a democracy with all people that disagree. And it's very hard for them to get things done, first thing. The second thing is the government's challenged with procurement processes, which are very cumbersome. And so uh, my business, because it's a private business, if I want to spend money and I have the money to spend, I can just do it. And if it doesn't work, I can change it the next day, you know, like, like we talked about. And so I started to experiment with some things. And I think that one of the most exciting uh, things we've done was our work with returning citizens or the formerly incarcerated. So the idea came up way before there was a name for it or people talked about it, maybe 20 years ago. My customers explained that uh, poor, mostly uh, people of color in Philadelphia have been mass incarcerated and they have criminal records. And because they have criminal records, they can't find a job. Employers won't hire them. And, and the customer, when she was explaining to me, actually said, we're worried for your survival because if you have all people that can't work, it's not a good equation to stay in business. And I think, uh, I think that's exactly what I would want your listeners to take from this. If you do nothing, it's not going to work. Doing something could make it work. It's just how do you do it? And so uh, we, we hired a half a dozen returning citizens, and we had an incredibly good initial experience. And that's uh, built into we have 500 active returning citizens working for us today out of our 22 or 2300 employees. And we set up a nonprofit uplift workforce that now trains returning citizens for, for uh, the greater uh, grocery and restaurant industry. And we have about 600 graduates there. So we have 1,100 experiences, and our program runs about a 2% recidivism rate, which means 98% of the people that get trained by us and placed into jobs don't go back to jail. And in Philadelphia, that runs 65 to 70% recidivism. So you see the way the government does it, almost complete failure. And the way a business could do it if they wanted to, an incredible uh, increase in performance. You have, I think, on your website, There's you have a mission video on your website. I wish more people had mission videos on their website, but part of it, I believe, is where you discuss this, the returning citizens. It was either there or in another place on your public communications. You talk about how many of these individuals, again, if you think about it, it's not completely surprising, have better than average business skills, not better than average communication skills, not better than average engagement with the outside world skills, but, but better than average business skills. And it's just a matter of working on the other stuff and encouraging the business skills and they can uh, help in, in, in the grocery business. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, and if I can make an observation, people that end up in jail, a lot of them drug offenses, um, tend to be the more ambitious people in society in, in an impoverished area. The less, less ambitious people just stayed home. Yeah. They didn't, they didn't do anything. Yeah. They took their government assistance and they did nothing. So these are the people that didn't want to settle. And, you know, uh, the drug trade or other illicit trades are a business. It's a bad business. It's a legal business. You could end up dead or in, in prison, but you do buy and sell things. You do have margins. You do have inventory. You, you need customer service skills. And, and those are skills that are just totally untapped, especially in a very tight labor market. I think that probably re- represents the greater, greatest single opportunity for employers that they haven't considered yet. The second thing is, if you leave everyone with no job, they must go back to a life of crime. There isn't another way. 
And so everyone you hire is someone you take out of the criminal world and bring into a good organized societal role. And, and how that's exactly been right. about a decade now? Is that correct? I've been doing this two decades. And have any of those individuals made it up to the managerial uh, ranks at this point? Oh, an amazing number. I, wa- I want to say two or three dozen are in various management positions because they're more ambitious and they're more business oriented. Mm-hmm. Where, where a person who's, let's say, a regular entry level worker wants to know about what time do they have to work or what rules they have to follow. And, and, you know, a more ambitious person would be like, how do you make money on this? And couldn't you make more money if you do it this way? And can't we order better? Can't we, you know, you could just see the difference. And, and I, I remember that difference from when I was a young guy, because my dad was a grocer and I was always interested in the business and how you make money in the business. And I see that same kind of spark in people that were just misguided and just happened to be b- born in the wrong uh, census track and ended up in a bad circumstance. But the possibility that they could be outstanding citizens, have a family, teach Little League, buy a house, and be just like the rest of us is very, very good. So some of the other elements of the community involvement, in addition to the Returning Citizens Program, which I really applaud you for, is, is the entrepreneurial pop-ups, uh, which are, occupy a fairly large percentage of your social media, but they all look very interesting and very tasty. I have to say, I, uh, how, how does that work out from a business perspective? And you want to describe it? Yeah. So um, this really accelerated during the pandemic. Um, not that I didn't have enough things to deal with, but I was really worried about the rest of the business community that were shut down. I was worried about mass bankruptcy. And when society turned back on, half of the business is not reopening. That was, that's what I was concerned about. And so some friends of my, and I started the PA 30 day fund. And uh, we, we were giving $3,000 forgivable loans, uh, which we for, we'll forgive them all. Um, we were giving those $3,000 loans out to small, mostly minority and women-owned businesses in Pennsylvania, about half of them in, in Philadelphia. And uh, based on geography and our interests, we'd call them once they got approved to tell them they got approved and ask them if there's anything else we could do to help them survive. And, you know, uh, a number of them said, well, you're open and I'm not. Can I sell my product in your store? And so we started to work with some of them uh, during the pandemic and we had some successes. Now it's up to about 150 businesses we work with, very, very uh, small micro businesses. And a number of them have uh, permanent facilities in our stores. And so there's a couple interesting things about that. One is I told you how important agility is to my business model. This is one step even further because I'm still a much bigger business than they are. And so they're right with the customers. They're from the neighborhoods. They really understand the cultural nuances. And they have a, just a bunch of really creative and interesting products. The, the second is we have a process. So it starts out with a pop-up, like you rightfully said, which means we don't make a big commitment to each other. We, we market test it. And, you know, uh, the pop-ups, you know, some do $1,000 a day, which is good. Some do several thousand dollars a day. So the ones that do really good, we know we have a winner. Mm -hmm. And those are the ones we advance to a more permanent relationship. And so I think it's very interesting for a number of reasons. One is my customers really like it. They like the unique products. The second is the, the reason we have such problems in Philadelphia is that a lot of the people of color, they're well underrepresented in entrepreneurship and management of businesses. 
And so anything I could do to advance my customer's success will ultimately make my business more successful. And so I think from a marketing standpoint, a business standpoint, and from a social standpoint, this thing is right on all those things. It sounds, sounds like a very good formula. What is striking to me and from my perch is how almost at odds it is with the normal financial media, the financial media that I inhabit, which is, again, is about scale and size and non-customization and just-in-time supply chains from all over the globe, all of which kind of just failed over the last 18 months. And you're, you're providing, again, a, a different message of uh, local involvement that was, seems to have a working formula in this, this time of, of crisis. So uh, I, uh, I applaud you and uh, particularly really applaud the, the Returning Citizens Program. We're, we're kind of running out of time here, so I'm going to open it up and say, what's, what's next for, uh, and I'm very carefully phrasing this, what's next for Brown's Superstores and uh, what's next for, for, for Jeff Brown? As we come out, seriously, of, the, uh, of a crisis situation, you know, how, are, how are your stores going to be different? Uh, you know, any, any particular learnings other than you know, validating what you, you know, uh, your local involvement? But changes in the business practices and then also, uh, you know, any, any other changes that uh, you want to discuss? Yeah. So um, from a business standpoint, um, we're very excited for our young, small entrepreneurs of color mostly. And um, we, we know that we have some that are going to advance into um, permanent spots in our store. And, and we're starting to do some remodels where, where um, we're really featuring them. We're excited. We're excited for that. And, uh, you know, uh, Scale and efficiency and, and AI is still part of what we do. And um, our online business is growing very rapidly, m- much more rapidly than brick and mortar. And, you know, uh, we, we, we most likely will build a, a, uh, a robotic fulfillment center. And will uh, that so- be for delivery, uh, home delivery, or will that be for uh, pick and, and pick up at the stores, uh, pick and fill? And- yeah, either. We do both today, but we do it no, te- no, no uh, automation all people. And it's just not competitive. And so um, I I think over the next couple of years, we'll have an automated uh, fulfillment center that will cover our 12 stores. And we might also add a commissary onto it because, you know, we have a number of homemade items like our sweet potato pie that are quite famous. And uh, we're about to launch um, the sale of our sweet potato pie online, sell it direct to consumer. So that that's another growth area. Um, And, you know, uh, I'm reaching an age, you know, of my four sons. My older son is with us, and he's our CFO. He's done a great job. My wife is our EVP, and uh, she and she's also uh, handled tremendous amount of responsibility. And we have one outsider, and uh, the three of them are really our core management team. And uh, you know, they're, they're all ambitious, and they they I, they want some of my work. And so I'm planning to to step back a, a little more, give them more of my responsibilities. And I'm uh, con- contemplating uh, a run for mayor of Philadelphia. Indeed. Well, I wish you uh, great, great luck and success in that. I certainly think that the degree to which you have your community involvement experience and business experience in a very symbiotic fashion is something that is pretty rare in the political spectrum. I, I certainly will be uh, cheering you. I am not a registered voter in Philadelphia or outside voter of Philadelphia. I moved to the other end of the state, but uh, Jeff will certainly be... Uh, uh, tracking. How can uh, listeners keep an eye on what you're doing? I mentioned your your social media, but what specific uh, 
sites would you like to mention so that uh, so so uh, I try to change my handle to Jeff Brown Grocer on all my sites. It's LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram. Even I have a couple TikToks, uh, Twitter. Do you, um, do, you so, dance, yeah. do you dance on your TikTok? Yeah, yeah. I have a uh, one of our entrepreneurs, um, Saudia Schuler's Country Cooking. Um, she has quite a quite an Instagram follower, and she talked me into doing a couple tic, TikTok dances with her. We had fun and did that. Okay, I have to review those before I can recommend them to my uh, my <laughs> listeners. Right. But uh, Jeff Brown Grocer on pretty much any social media uh, platform, and we'll we'll keep track of of the good news. I guess it's been Jeff Brown. He is the CEO and founder of uh, Brown Superstores, uh, ten shop rights and two of the fresh grocers in in Philadelphia. Very very involved in his community and someone who has made what modern finance struggles with, which is small is beautiful, scale, community involvement. Uh, and so I, I really applaud you, uh, Jeff, for, for pulling all those threads together and making it work. So thank you so much for, for being on the show. That, thank you, Dan. And a good catching up with you after a, quite an incredible number of years since high school. Oh, yeah. We won't mention 40 years. <laughs> no, 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 we didn't, somebody said that. Okay. Thank you so much. <laughs>